Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. At this time of year, we like to highlight the stories of some of the people that work very hard all year to ensure that our community receives the best possible experience and that we maintain the level of excellence that we continue to strive for. As we tell the tremendous stories of our members, we also want to share the stories of the staff that also has twists and turns in their lives and to get to know them in a more personal way. We are all part of this wonderful community. Today's program is once again brought to you with the support of Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for 75 years and has some surprises in store for you in the fall of this year. AT&T, who reminds us it can wait, please don't drive distracted, and Back Nine Greens, whose work is known worldwide. Remember that golf art starts with Back Nine Greens. This is Marty Lockman, and today's guest is a person who many of you know as the clubhouse manager in Somalay. Today you will get to know more about the person, Juan Blanchard has been in his position here since September 1st, 2018. But let's go back to the story that brought him here. And it all starts in Humboldt County, California, in a small town called Garberville. Juan, thanks for being here. And tell us your story. Well, I didn't spend much time in Garberville. Um, we moved to the Big Island of Hawaii when I was one years old. My mom moved my brother and my sister and I from California for a new start. This is where she met and married Marco Blanchard, who adopted my brother, sister, and I a couple of years after they married. Growing up, uh, we did not have a lot of money, but we had a fun childhood. We were always doing things outdoors, whether it was camping, going to the beach, or riding horseback with an organization called 4-H. I played the typical sports when I was a kid, like baseball, soccer, golf, and tried out for peewee football, but could never make the weight. When I was in the fourth grade, my parents separated and my younger sister and I moved with my mom down to the Kona Coast on the Big Island. This is when I picked up surfing. This took most of my childhood moving forward and I was an avid surfer all the way through high school. I started competing in the HSA circuit, which was a local amateur surfing association. My junior year of high school, I made it to state championships at Ala Moana Bowls on the island of Oahu, but I lost my first heat. In any case, for a 16-year-old, it was an exciting time. I started working at the age 15. My first job was at Jack in a Box as a fry cook. I quickly worked my way up to grill cook, my big first promotion. Through high school, I worked in restaurants as a dishwasher, prep cook, busboy, and server. Now to tell you a little bit about my parents, my mother, Sherry Elizabeth Holloway, she was born in 1951 in Washington, D.C. She was raised in Richmond, Virginia with her five other siblings until 1961 when they moved to Annapolis, Maryland. My mother graduated with a Bachelor of Art from the University of Hawaii later in life when I was 21 years old. Most of her jobs throughout her career consists of working with children, and she's currently employed part-time as a reading interventionist for Calakay Elementary School, as well as working from home as an artist. 
My mother's father, my grandfather, Benjamin Duke Holloway, was born in 1925 in Northern Carolina, youngest of eight children into a lineage of Duke University's founding family. His work with Equitable Life Assurance is well known by anyone who had anything to do with development. Now, before I speak about my father who raised me, I wanted to mention that my mother separated from my biological father, John Furman, when I was a toddler. I never met him until I was a bit older, but we have a great relationship and he's a good person and father to me. My father, Marco Allen Blanchard, was born in Northridge, California. He was one of four siblings. They moved around quite a bit from California to Colorado to Hawaii, Maryland, and Virginia. By the time he was in the fifth grade, he had lived in five states. While living in Hawaii as a kid, he learned how to sell at Kaneohe Yacht Club and fell in love with Hawaii and sailing. He learned about woodworking from his dad at a young age. And after high school, my father took a job for a Mexican Jacusto type society called Oceana as a sailing master on a 106 foot schooner, sailing the coast of Mexico from San Diego as far as Puerto Vallarta. After that, he returned to Hawaii and settled down on the Big Island to become a union journeyman carpenter. This is where he met and married my mom. He's continued working in construction until present time. His current, he's currently running the Big Island branch of Armstrong Builders in Oahu Company, building custom homes in Kohanaiki, a private resort community. After high school, I moved to Santa Barbara, California to go to school. All my friends were moving to three possible locations, Santa Barbara, San Diego, or Las Vegas. I attended Santa Barbara City College for two years and continued to work in restaurants to make ends meet. At this point, I was solely working as a bartender at a couple of restaurants. After my second year at SBCC, I landed a position at the Four Seasons Biltmore in Santa Barbara as a bartender for their newly renovated pool. After I complete orientation for the company, I was hooked. I loved everything they stood for as a company and their philosophy on hospitality. I worked for the company 11 years and at three properties, the Biltmore Santa Barbara, Wallowai on the Big Island of Hawaii, and Aviara in North County, San Diego. I started as a bartender and left the company as a food and beverage division head. It was a really great experience for me and helped grow me as a manager and a hospitality professional. After being with the company for 11 years and moving three times, I wanted to plant some roots in San Diego. I had my first son, Skylar, two years previous with my second child, Colton, on the way. I found out about a food and beverage director position at Rancho Santa Fe Golf Club through one of my colleagues at work. Her husband was a superintendent there. I've never worked for a golf club before, but decided to give it a shot. During my interview, I was blown away with the property and the golf's rich golf course's rich history. While waiting in the lobby to speak to the general manager, I noticed an advertisement for an upcoming wine dinner with Verite featuring winemaker Pierre Sion. I knew the wines and what they cost. I was impressed that they were hosting a dinner of this caliber. The interview went great and I was offered the job on the spot. I quickly learned while working at RSFGC how much I'm going to love working for clubs. You really get to know your clients, aka members, better than you ever would working in a hotel, where the average stay is three days and you may never see that guest again. You have a platform to perform well and give great service every day. In my opinion, this creates a feeling of camaraderie amongst the staff and membership. 
it was at RSFGC when I decided to study and achieve some wine certifications to become a sommelier. I've always worked with wine and beverages throughout my career, but noticed how advanced the wine culture is in a club setting. For example, most clubs host wine festivals, wine dinners, have a wine retail program, and have an extensive seller list. I found myself feeling a bit overwhelmed and undereducated amongst the subject. So in October of 2015, I signed up for the Level 1 Introductory Course throughout the course through the Court of Master Sommeliers. I took the course and passed it on December 15th that same year. It was advised to me to study and prepare for the Level 2 Certified Sommelier at least one year, but I wasn't getting any younger, and there was a test available to sign up for in three months on March 30th, 2016, so I went for it. A typical day for me in those three months leading up to the test would consist of waking up at 4 a.m. every day to get three hours of studying in before the kids woke up. I would then spend a little time with them, get them ready for daycare before heading to the club to work all day. It was a bit of a grind, and I put a lot of pressure on myself, but sometimes that's when I do the best. So March 30th became, came before I knew it, and I passed the test to become a certified sommelier. Spent over a little five years at Rancho Santa Fe Golf Club, and it was a great experience and introduction into club management for me. In June of 2018, one of our RSFGC members, who is also a member of Bighorn, Dr. Greenway, introduced me to one of his friends while dining in the bar. This is where I met R.D. Hubbard. At this time, I had no idea, but this was definitely an informal interview. Mr. Hubbard had asked me a few questions about wine, and I offered some recommendations. As the night progressed, and two bottles of Cabernet later, Mr. Hubbard started telling me about his club and how great Bighorn is. I remember him saying, Juan, we have everything at Bighorn anyone would ever need, except a gas pump, but we're working on that. I didn't know much about Bighorn at the time, but he sure painted a grand picture for me, and I was very intrigued. As much of us already know, Mr. Hubbard has a way of making you a believer and getting you excited about being a part of something. A couple of days later, I received a call from Tony Ogrodnik with an invitation to come and visit the club. And the rest is history. Well, Juan, I appreciate, you know, that's a, uh, it does talk about twists and turns because certainly in your early life, uh, there was a number of twists and turns. You mentioned that there wasn't a whole lot of money. But like many of the people that come in here, as we look back on it, it didn't change the happiness factor. We look back on the knowledge of we didn't have anything, but we had an awful lot still. Would that be, certainly it seems like the case in your situation too. We didn't have a lot of money. We lived in a house that didn't even have indoor plumbing, so... (laughs) Uh, but we had a, a great house there. We had a big mango tree on property and a lychee tree on property. And we kind of lived an easy lifestyle. And we would always go to the beach when my dad wasn't working or on camping trips. And uh, I had my brothers and sisters to play with. So, you know, I never noticed the difference. Right. And I think that out of that comes um, when we do start working. Uh, it's not just because it's something that we absolutely want to do. 
but we have to do because we're part of a family that needs to be supported. We, we want a little independence ourselves and have a few dollars in our pocket. What's the, you said about working in fast food, what's the first job that you can think of that you were doing? Well, my father at a young age would always make my brother and I pull weeds every weekend, and uh, I just remember hating it every, <laughs> every second. It was never fun for me, but you know, we wouldn't be able to have fun and play until we get it all done, and it would be a couple hours of work. And you know, I think that was my first kind of job and uh, introduction into work ethic and you know, working hard to be able to accomplish something. And your parents, it seems. Um, in the various configurations that you've described, all taught you a work ethic. They all seemed to be people that worked hard, and and uh, that had to be something that's been instilled in you for a long time. Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, my my mom, she worked off and on. Uh, my dad was always working, and and he was a uh, you know kind of that example for me on what it takes to be able to provide for the family. So. You've been in, it seems like a lot of your jobs, uh, even before you worked in the corporate side of food and beverage, um, they seem to be involved in the food industry. I mean, is this something that you consciously thought of, or is it just something that, that evolved? I think uh, growing up in Hawaii, it's just something that I kind of fell into. You know, our number one industry there is tourism and, you know, food service is you know, a job that you can get easily when you're young. And, you know, I grew up surfing, so this was a job that I could do at nighttime and I could still go to school and I could still surf before going to work and then I could work a night shift and have some cash in my pocket. So I always kind of liked that um, aspect of food service. And the more you were involved in it, obviously, the more job opportunities that occurred. Once, so what certainly becomes a job is becomes a career. That's right. I mean, it all kind of evolves. And, um, you know, that's really when I got the position at Four Seasons is when I really started to focus and see this as hospitality more as a lifetime career than something I just do to pay the bills. Um, tell me, your first experience or major job experience is in the corporate world. Does that give you a training ground for everything that then comes after that? We had somebody in here as a, as a guest on our podcast. They said, well, working for this company taught me the basics, and it allowed me to go forward, but it really gave me a platform from which to work. Would you think say that's true about your situation? Yeah, I think, um, in my opinion, Four Seasons is the leading uh, hotel chain in the industry, and their culture is so strong in service, and that really gave me a good foundation moving forward with the way that I approach service and the way that I coach staff to be able to approach service as well. You know, it's all about the member experience and delivering for them on a constant basis. And I definitely took a lot of things that I learned at the Four Seasons and applied it to Rancho Santa Fe Golf Club, even here at Bighorn. And, you know, every club I'm learning now that you go into has different needs and some have a lot of needs <laughs> and a lot of fix. And Rancho Santa Fe Golf Club had a little bit of that and I was able to really elevate the service quickly. And when I came to Bighorn, 
um, there wasn't a lot of need for any fix. The culture was already very strong, what Mr. Hubbard had had uh, grown over the years. So I was just able to, you know, add my skill to the set to kind of complement what, what already was happening. Well, and I, th- I would think you have a, a situation, and again, you're the, you have the knowledge of this. I'm just asking the questions. When you're in a corporate situation, it's pretty well uh, established a certain set of rules in the way that it goes. It would seem to me in the club business, regardless of what club it is, there's cultural differences between these different clubs. It's not just a matrix that's laid down. You really have to adapt to that particular culture, and and I would think that that's a challenge in itself sometimes. Yeah, um, I mean, most definitely. Uh, And you're right, in a corporate playing field you do have a set of standards that you follow and you know there's uh, certain guidelines and but in clubs every club is different and Rancho Santa Fe Golf Club is completely different the Bighorn um, so you, you do have to adapt and um, you know a good hospitality professional is able to adapt easily because they just you know are going after the golden thing to take good, good care of the members. The common goal is still the same. As you went through school Your intent was always to be in the hospitality business at that time. Tell me, what's been the biggest challenge as you've progressed? Obviously, your skill set and the way that you've handled yourself has allowed you to progress very quickly. What were some of the challenges early on? I think for a lot of young managers, uh, managing people can be a challenge. So, you know, you start off your career working in food beverage and you're really just managing yourself <laughs> trying to give service to people. And then when you have to start managing others and lead others, uh, you know, you grow and learn a lot through the process. And when I was a young manager, you know, I used to manage a lot on my emotions and not think clear-headed about things as much and I would always regret it afterwards. So, you know, it's just it's 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 working years in the position and going through different situations and learning from it and evolving really. And like all of us, just a level of maturity as as we get older and we learn those lessons. Also, in the hospitality business, quite often it's a transient business. I mean, many times young people are looking at it as a seasonal situation and there's not a long, lot of longevity well you've come to a situation here where there's it's just about the opposite and that people have chosen this as a career and because of the kind of culture that they have that the, they tend to stay i would imagine that is um not easier but to have some continuity I would think is helpful in this business and the situation here. I would say it's easier yeah. <laughs> as well. I mean, uh, you know, the tenure of a lot of the food and beverage staff are 20 years plus. You know, when I was doing the interview with Tony back in 2018, we were touring the property, which took about two hours, which was really impressive. And uh, one of the questions I asked him, I said, wow, you know, I've never worked for a seasonal club, but it must be really hard to start new every season and have to retrain all these people to be able to give the same level of service and remember preferences. And then he educated me on the turnover rate and the longevity of the employees. And I was like, wow, you know, that makes it really easy. 
So it's there's something to say about that, and uh, you know, especially in clubs, because in clubs everybody has preferences, and we learn those preferences. And you know, they want to be part of the club because uh, the staff are like their family as well, and they know the staff's family and their kids, and you know what's going on in their life, and that's what creates this special connection that you have in clubs that you can't find in hotels or other areas. Well, I, I think. You're absolutely right, and you're part of that culture now. I know that people that come here, guests that we have, they don't say, well, I really like that third hole, or I really liked, uh, you know, the marketplace is really great. They all come away saying, your staff is really something. And they treat people, and that's part of the culture, like we are all family. It isn't an us and them kind of attitude at all. And I think that's one of the great strengths of this place. I agree. When you first met R.D. Hubbard, you explained the conversation and, and the fact that it really was an interview. What were your first impressions of Mr. Hubbard? So the first time I met him, I, I got to meet him in a very casual setting in the bar. Dr. Greenway kind of talked him up a little bit before I got to meet him, uh, and he was excited for us both to meet. I felt that he was somebody larger than life, and after I got to talking to him for a while and not just that evening, but we've had further conversations with, you know, getting me down here to the club. I realized he was someone I didn't want to disappoint. And I remember something he said to me at, before I started here. He said, just make sure you give me five years <laughs> because he knows my aspirations and he knows that I want to be a general manager and those are things that we were talking about. But, God, it stuck with me, <laughs> you know. And if a position would have came up available before that, I would have stayed anyways just because he's that kind of person. You don't want to let him down. Well, and let me tell you that that attitude not only uh, affects people that are working here, it affects membership. I mean, nobody wanted to let R.D. Hubbard down. That's yeah. for sure. We've just gone through a really challenging time. I mean, this COVID thing, we... Uh, it's real. We had to make adjustments. Uh, we didn't know how long those adjustments were going to be. Tell me, what what were some of the greatest challenges? Because nobody's ever been through this before, so we're doing it on, as we go along. Take us back to March of last year and how this all evolved for you guys. Well, it was. it came to us as a a huge shock. Um, it was actually one of the best seasons that we were having leading up to it in the busiest January in club history, which, you know, usually January is kind of dipped down a little bit. So, um, you know, in hospitality, you're used to just being able to give service to the members and have them in the restaurants and, you know, Bighorn altogether doesn't have a lot of rules. And we were enforced to have all these new rules and you know members couldn't understand it especially in the beginning not being able to come into their club and dine and be part of it i mean i can remember back to the easter of 2020 when we shut down it was just tony and i the only employees at the club because we had to close down for a few days because there was an infection um from one of the dishwashers and in the um clubhouse and at that time it was in the very beginning of covid and nobody knew much about it so you know we shut down for a few days and on easter day tony and i were out there passing out jersey mike sandwiches from 10 to 12 or 10 to 2 
you know, all my years in hospitality, you know, that's always the busiest day of the year for you. And I'm out there with a mask on handing out sandwiches. So, you know, it was a tough time, especially during the closures that we were only doing delivery and takeout. Um, and one of my biggest fears were for the staff and how they're going to make ends meet um, with the loss of revenue. You know, this is when uh, we were a seasonal club and, and they make their money during season um, and get laid off in the summer and are able to make it through to the next season. So that was a big fear for us and for me. Um, I think it all worked out great, though. Uh, but it was it's just hard to make adjustments. We tried to do some things through our delivery program. We did like a lobster special that did really well. And, you know, people, everyone kind of evolved. And and at one point we were making, they could do pre-orders. And we used to joke that when they're doing the pre-orders, it's kind of their way of making dining reservations, you know, to feel a little bit normal. And, you know, I think the membership kind of evolved as well. And, you know, they would have their groups that they would hang out with and they would have us, they would put in their orders to be delivered to so-and-so's house and they would all meet there. So, you know, I think uh, we all did just the best that we could. And that's been very much appreciated, I think, on both sides. Nobody could prepare for this, as you've said. So I think that we, we learned as we went along. What was the most difficult period of time? You and your group did a great job of letting it evolve and trying to get service to people. So that goes without saying, although it should be said. What was the greatest challenge through that period of time? You know, I think the the most um, stressful time of the whole pandemic was in the very beginning when before we went into full shutdown and we were starting to get information about this and we're having to cancel events and, you know, possibly close the restaurants. And, um, you know, there was just a bunch of stress on the shoulders of Tony obviously, and, and myself, because we're going into tr- uncharted territories and we don't know how to respond or react to it. And, um, you know, the further we got into the pandemic, it kind of, we evolved and it got easier. It, w- it wasn't great by any means because, you know, we weren't giving the type of service and amenities that we would like to for Bighorn members. But I would say out of the whole thing, the most challenging and stressful part was in the very beginning. And now as you look forward to, although we're not finished this year, we have great events coming up, and, and so we continue to operate, and each day seems to be getting even bigger and better, and we're able to do special events that we weren't able to do at the start, as you said. And as I understand it, too, special events are the lifeblood, lifeblood of a club. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, you hope to do well, but the special events are really what helps the club to derive revenue. And I think, um, you know, the special events and the events calendar is what helps a club be successful because it's attractive to the membership. You know, some events are what we call lost leaders and we're not making money on it, but they're, it's, a, it's a benefit of being a member of that club. You know, like we have a tequila tasting coming up on the 20th, which um, is a lost leader, but it's going to be super fun. And uh, so, you know, having a healthy calendar like that for a club is very important uh, because it keeps the excitement and keeps things fresh and new. And we can add new things like this year. We added the sushi and sake, which was really popular. 
event for us in the Havana Nights at the Oasis. When you're working those events and you see the smile on the member's face, I think that's what it's all about. And that's why you get so excited about doing what you're doing, and especially events, because it's not only fun for the membership, it's fun for the staff, because we get out, get out and do something different from the norm of working in the restaurants. Well, there's a pent-up demand, I mean, because people have felt, although there was no better place to be than Bighorn during the pandemic, if you had to be someplace. But there still is that pent-up demand for the type of activities that you have now and that you have been doing. As you look towards next year, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, and I would imagine it's very difficult for you to look at next year and put together a calendar. But do you see, as things open up, there will be some return to normalcy as we go into November next year? Again, we're not going to hold you to this, but uh, uh, it, how are you guys planning as if we're going to be back to some sort of normalcy? Yeah, I think you have to. Um, even going into this season that we're finishing up, you know, we were in the pandemic, but we still put all these events on the calendar hoping for the best because what's the alternative? <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, you know, I think the way I personally feel with the way the pandemic's going, um, things are loosening up, and I feel like next season is going to be much more wide open than it was before, and we're going to spend the summer months to plan new events and fun events and make it exciting. And I, I tell you what, if, if the restrictions are lifted next year, it's probably going to be the busiest season in Bighorn history because everybody's ready to get out and do some stuff. Well, as history has shown us, you know, in, in 1918, when they had the pandemic, what followed it was the Roaring Twenties. <laughs> and I think that that's definitely the kind of attitude. And, and that's helped, too, by the influx of new members, uh, a lot of new people coming into the club, a lot of people that haven't experienced, although we, we treasure our history here, but these are people that are just experiencing this for the first time. That's another, not challenge, but something that we look forward to in, uh, in the coming season. Mm, most definitely. One a question I have for you too is, during this pandemic and as it's evolved, we certainly have been serving a lot of food here at Bighorn, uh, just on a daily basis between takeout and the poorhouse and the steakhouse and the golf house now and everything that's open. Give me some numbers so that people can have a feeling exactly what you guys are putting out every day. Well, interesting fact that not everybody knows is um, last year in 2020, at the end of the year, even with all the closures and the delivery and to-go that we were forced to do for so long, we actually hit our food budget for the poorhouse, which shows a lot. You know, members were dining with us every day um, through the delivery service and takeout. You know, one way or another, we were feeding them. Um, since things have evolved and we've re reopened this spring, I mean, it's all cart-wise, it's probably felt like the busiest since I've been here. Um, there's not a night that we operate that we do less than 100, um, but there's a good stretch that in both restaurants we'll have over 200 covers that we'll do um, in a night. And uh, in the poorhouse, what a lot of people don't know about as well, is we'll, we might do 200 to 220 covers in the restaurant, but we're also on the back end doing 150 delivery <laughs> orders. 
And, you know, everybody probably knows her lawn very well because he makes a visit to everybody's house one time or another. So, um, you know, on a constant basis and in the steakhouse on a Friday and Saturday night, we'll do over 200 covers easy. Um, the golf house is consistent for breakfast and lunch. So it's, uh, I've definitely noticed an increase in a la carte dining since we re back, we reopened and, you know, We've talked about it before. Everybody wants to get back out there and enjoy themselves and enjoy the club. So we're seeing a lot of that, and we're very grateful for it. Well, I think it's it says something about both the membership and your ability to provide all of those meals to everybody because the club, uh, the club members want to support it, but it doesn't work unless you can then provide it, and you guys have done a fantastic job. Thank you. What do you look for in people that work with you? Well, hospitality is a people-based business. Our main purpose is to provide friendly and efficient service. And as an executive, if you can surround yourself with these types of individuals, you'll be highly successful. So I'm always looking for individuals that are warm, friendly, and outgoing personalities. You can train anyone to do a job in hospitality, but you cannot train personality traits. And I don't care who I'm interviewing, whether it's uh, for a dishwasher in the back of the house or a server for the front of house. If uh, they don't have an outgoing personality and smile in the interview, they never make it past that interview. It's an important factor, especially, well, at any place, but especially here, because that's the attitude that we want to be pervasive throughout the company. What is your management philosophy? Well, in regards to managing people, it's simple, really. Uh, I practice the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated. Over the years, I've gotten better at this. We kind of talked about it earlier, but as a young manager, I would sometimes act on my emotions, which would I would always regret, and it always get me into trouble a bit. Um, you have to be fair but firm and hold your team accountable. Uh, my wife always tells me something that sounds funny, but it works. She says, always be a lady. <laughs> so in regards to operations, I always try to introduce new product or services to the membership, Especially in a club setting, you have to constantly push yourself and your team to be creative and efficient in the service that you provide. One of the services that you brought, or one of the skill sets that you brought to the club, was your knowledge of wine and your connections within the wine industry. Uh, tell me how that evolved. And um, uh, just tell it everybody about the number of events that you've now hosted and how those come about and what your plans are for the future regarding that. Yeah, um, yeah, I was really excited to come down to Bighorn and part of the conversations that Artie Hubbard and I were having when I was at Rancho Santa Fe is he wanted me to, you know, look at the wine program and develop it to what I've done at Rancho Santa Fe, which was really good. So you know, since I've come down, um, we've added these grand wine festivals, which um, before I came, there were about 12 tables, and now we have like 34 tables. So in the beginning of each season, the Welcome Home Week, we have a big wine festival, which is complimentary to the members. And uh, I send a list out of over 300 wines, you know, the week before, so everyone can do a little bit of homework. And it's a great social event for the beginning of the season and a great way for members to purchase wine to be ready for the season. Um, we do three wine dinners every season now, and I've... Uh, always switch it up and pick different wineries every season and each one has been successful we've sold out every single wine dinner that we hold at the canyons restaurant 
scotch tastings have been added, tequila tastings have been added as well that are coming up. But one thing that I'm the most proud of is the Bighorn Wine Shop that we launched this last December. So um, I think I talked about it earlier, but um, most clubs sell retail wine. It's part of their business model, and it's an amenity for the membership because they're able to purchase wine at sometimes half the price that you would see in the retail market. So at Rancho Santa Fe, I, I took that program, and when I left, I was selling about three quarters of a million dollars out of that you know smaller operation and it was i was really proud of that and i always thought to myself out there gosh you know there's got to be an easier way of doing it because i would do it through a few wine dinners and a festival and a lot of it end up coming through um, members just reaching out to me saying hey can you send me some cabernet recommendations or you know or whatever and that takes a lot of my time you, know, you have to research all those pricings and make sure that they're correct and check the distributors and then you know, formulate an email and send it back to them. So I had this idea in my mind when I was at Rancho Santa Fe that I want to create a website, an online virtual store that members can go to and they can search thousands of wines that have information about the vintage and critic reviews and information about the winery um, to give them some knowledge. And uh, we're able to do it here at Bighorn. So on uh, the Bighorn website, there's a portal to the Bighorn Wine Shop. We have about 1,700 wines loaded on there. We launched it in December of this last year, and it's been highly successful. The first month, we sold $68,000. Second month, we sold $70,000. In February, which is a short month, we sold $100,000. And uh, in March, uh, we sold another $70,000. And uh, in April, I'm, I'm looking to sell about $80,000. So it's, you know, it's, it's being highly used by the membership. It's really easy to use. The wine's delivered right to your house. And, and that, for me, was kind of like a, a huge not, notch in my belt because I know there's no other clubs doing it, and it's just one more thing that sets Bighorn way above the competitors. And I know that it's become immensely popular within the membership and I also believe, and I hope this podcast helps, it's still the word needs to get out even more than it already has. Because once people find out about it, they're users. Uh, and so it's just a matter of, as in any store, you need to create traffic. And I hope that uh, we can help in that and just getting the word out. Because once people use it, all the feedback is extremely positive. Yes, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, when I, I did a little bit of research before I got here to see how much retail wine they were selling in a typical year, and the most they ever sold was about $140,000. So, you know, I'm selling that in a month now. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd say that speaks to the success. That's, that's terrific. Um, who are the people who have influenced you the most? Now, I've been lucky enough uh, to have worked with many people throughout my career who have been a positive influence on me. It's, it's just too, too many to mention or to talk about. But one thing that always sticks with me is the way that my father pushed me as a child. Uh, you know, in pulling weeds, like I said, or doing work around the house, or just, you know, installing this work ethic that's really helped me in my career and helped me keep pushing to get where I am today. I'm sure that throughout, as you've mentioned, throughout your life, there's a lot of those people, and I realize that it's difficult to single out any of them. But, um, and I'm sure that that list continues to 
to grow um, because you continue to grow. And I would think in your job, uh, both as a, a director, but also in, your, in the wine aspect of this, it's an ongoing education for you that you have to keep up. Um, it is. And, uh, you know, this, uh, when this pandemic happened uh, back in March of 2020, I told myself I was going to achieve something out of this pandemic rather than just gaining 10 pounds like everybody else has. <laughs> so I, uh, I signed up for another wine certification and studied over the summer to achieve my level three awards in wine through the WSET, which is another organization uh, called Wine and Spirits Educational Trust. So I took my test in October and I passed. And I'm still currently studying to become an advanced sommelier through the Court of Masters, where I have my certified. And uh, that's that's my end goal, that there's less than a thousand of those sommeliers in the world. And I'd like to be part of that club. And it would be, it'd be great for this club, too, to have an advanced sommelier. Um, and I'm also working on my CCM through the CMAA, which is Club Managers Association of America, to get my certified club manager distinction um, to become a general manager. So... So, again, um, your aspirations are to continue to grow in this business and to continue to help yourself, your family, and, and everything else. We hope that it is a long time that you can stay here because you've done such a great job here. In business, we always want people that want to better themselves. And as long as they're growing, they're helping the place that they're at. So we, we thank you very much for everything you've done. What would you tell the 20-year-old Juan Blanchard? <laughs> Lay off the drinks and focus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I thought about a question like that, and uh, I wouldn't tell myself anything different to change the path that I took. I mean... You know, I go back and tell my 20-year-old some, something that changes it, and I don't meet my wife and, you know, don't have my children. So I think everything kind of happens the way that it's supposed to, and, and I'm happy where I am now and where I'm going. And again, we are part of our past. I mean, you know, we grow and we become the person that we are today, and from what we've seen, that's pretty good stuff for you. <laughs> Um, I really want to thank you, Juan, for coming in and doing this because I think it's really important that people, as I said in the intro, people get to know you because uh, we have a tendency sometimes, both on the member side, uh, on both sides of the equation, we're all one and we are family. But I think anything that brings us closer together and gives us knowledge about each other on an individual basis helps going forward. So thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. We hope in these broadcasts, we get the story behind the individual that we deal with on a daily basis. And in Juan's story, I believe that we have an understanding of his background and life experiences that contribute to our enjoyment here at Bighorn. This edition of the Bighorn Podcast has been brought to you by Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, AT&T, and Back Nine Greens, whose support allows us to bring to you these interesting people and their extraordinary stories. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to Season 4, 
which will be starting in October 2021.